turn to the book of Romans, Romans 15. We're going to continue our study in this great book, Romans 15. All right. Well, it's always good to be prepared and to know what to do, right? Uh, It's very interesting. There's been a national bestseller. The book is called The Worst Case Scenario Survival Handbook. Look familiar? Okay. Some of you actually have this. They have a calendar version. I gave this to my dad for uh, birthday or Christmas, something like that. He, He wasn't as interested as I was. But it's got a lot of fascinating information. For instance, it tells you how to avoid perils and what to do if you face them. So, like, for instance, if you're being attacked by a mountain lion, that should never happen. You know, you get on the wrong side of the zoo and you're in the cage. tells you what to do. tells you how to handle uh, blind dates, which may have some equivalence to being attacked by a mountain lion. Uh, avalanches, what to do with the teenage driving lessons, which I should probably read up on that chapter. Okay. Um, what do you do with runaway golf courts or when your Christmas turkey is on fire? How do you handle the situation? If you want to know how to handle it and be equipped, you probably want that book because it's going to help you out. There is a fictitious manual for the Peace Corps volunteers, um, specifically those that are going to South America that's out there, and it offers advice on how to handle a chance encounter with an anaconda, which is kind of like a giant-sized boa constrictor. And so it has this title. It says, What to Do When Attacked by an Anaconda. Okay? It's got these ten steps. One, if you're attacked by an anaconda, do not run. The snake is faster than you are. Two, lie flat on the ground. Really? Three, put your arms tight at your sides and your legs tight against one another. Four, the snake will begin to climb over your body. (laughs) Great. Okay, five, do not panic. Six, the snake will begin to swallow you from the feet end. Seven, step six will take a long time. (laughs) You're kidding me. Eight, after a while... Slowly and with as little movement as possible, reach down, take your knife, and very gently slide it into the snake's mouth. Then suddenly sever the snake's head. Okay? That's all you have to do there. Nine, be sure you have your knife. And ten, be sure that it's sharp. Okay? So these are the steps in case you are encountering that this summer. You're prepared. You know what to do. And it is always good to be prepared. So I just have a question for you. How are you doing with what Jesus asked you to do. Did anybody remember what Jesus has actually asked us to do? Anybody know? Great. Glad you're here. Time for a little refresher. Let me remind you. Matthew chapter 28, final chapter in the Gospel of Matthew, beginning in verse 18. It wasn't just like a suggestion. It is actually a direction. It's a command. And he said this. Verse 18 Jesus came, spoke to them, saying, All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. I have all authority. That is a loaded statement. This is what I want you to do. I says, he says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. I want you to be baptizing them in the name, singular, of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, the triunity, the triune God. And he says this, I want you to be teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo... I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I know that you're chicken. I know that you probably won't do this. So I am going to give you my very presence because this is what I want you to do. So how are you doing? In fact, how does that happen? What does this practically look like in the 21st century? Now, when you talk about the subject of discipleship, let's making disciples, what is a simple definition? Well, it's this. It's the intentional 
and relational process of developing servants of Christ. And they are doing this, who are maturing in their faith, character, and relationships, and they're investing in others to do the same. That's what discipleship is. It's intentional and it's relational, and you're helping another person develop in their relationship with Christ so that they in return will do that with others. That's making disciples, and we are to do this, and it's to happen in all the nations. So how did the Apostle Paul go about it? What did the Great Commission look like in the Apostle Paul's life? Well, if you've got your Bibles open to Romans chapter 15, beginning in verse 14 through the end of the book, he is actually outlining what does the Great Commission look like. This is how to do it. And it's kind of like we're opening up his own private journal, and he is writing out, I want to give you a picture. This is what it looks like in my life. By the way, if you're looking to move from success to significance, then you're going to want to lock in at the end of Romans, chapter 15 and 16. Now, do you actually know the difference between success and significance? Success is, and a lot of people are like this, that I want to add value to my life. And so they've got achievements and various accomplishments, accolades, make money. They position themselves to add value to their life. And it's nothing wrong to be a success. In fact, in our church, we've got a lot of folks that are a success. But to move from success to significance, significance comes when you begin to add value to other people's lives. People of significance, it's not about them. So much is it about others, and what can I do to invest in the lives of other people? And so, if you're looking at being a true, spiritually significant person, what happens is you begin investing your life in the development of other people. And I want you to know something, that to pursue disciple-making, to make disciples like Jesus is calling, it's going to move you outside of your comfort zone. It's going to be like, you need to engage Even if you are an introvert, you can't just play the card, look, I'm an introvert, so I don't talk to people. No, you can be an intentional introvert, but you need to be involved in what Jesus is calling us to do, and that is what? Make disciples. And to do so is going to bring you outside of your comfort zone. Rusty Rustenbach, I mean, what a great name. He writes this article. If you ever have the last name Rustenbach, Rusty is a good name to name your kid, right? And I mean, that'd be great. He's probably a linebacker and everything. Okay, so he writes this article called Giving Yourself Away. And I want to just read a a brief excerpt. He says this, You and I live in an age when only a rare minority of individuals desire to spend their lives in pursuit of objectives which are bigger than they are. In our age, for most people, when they die, it will be as though they never lived. Think of it this way. Success can last a lifetime. Significance, on the other hand, can last several lifetimes. In fact, if you and I are involved in disciple-making, as Jesus has called us to do, your influence is going to have carryover value for generations. Think of the Apostle Paul. Think of the early church. They actually believed Jesus. They actually engaged in this ministry of making disciples. Their influence is felt today in the 21st century. That's the kind of life of significance that he's calling us to do. It's when we're not interested in us being a success. That's 
that's really not that important. But when we're involved in developing and mobilizing people, when that becomes more important than distinguishing ourselves, friends, that's when we move from success to significance. You see, we are on mission when we are growing in Christ and we're helping others do the same. That's when we know that we're on mission. And so I want you to think about your life. God really intends for you to be a spiritual leader. And you're like, oh, wait a second, I want to be a leader. I'm not a leader. Are you a parent? Uh, yeah, I am. You're a leader. Are you a spiritual leader? If you are involved in any way, shape, or form in the church, you're a spiritual leader. If you are involved at, at work or in your school, you could emerge as a spiritual leader. In fact, what God wants us to do is adopt the mindset that we're carrying out the mission of making disciples. And it doesn't matter whether you are a student, a teacher, a coach, a parent, a music conductor. Uh, you're leading with our children or working with our youth or our college or you're leading a small group or you're just involved in helping in some way that we're involved in helping people develop. The question is, will we be a disciple maker? When you come to the Apostle Paul. The outworking of good theology is that you are growing as a disciple maker in your ministry. I mean, the book of Romans is like the great treatise of the gospel. It is so rich theologically. You want to have a mature understanding of God and the gospel and righteousness and what God intends to bring transformation in the lives of his people. All you need to do is study the book of Romans. And that's what we've been doing as a church. But I want you to know something. The outworking of good theology is that you put it into practice. You fulfill the ministry that Jesus has called us to do. In fact, he's empowered us to do it. And they say that, you know, a picture is worth a thousand words. You heard that before? A picture is worth a thousand words. That's what Paul's doing. He's saying, I'm going to give you a picture of what disciple making looks like in my life. It's showing versus just telling. Discipleship is more caught than it is taught. And so he says, let me give you the inside look of an intentional life. And if you want to develop as a disciple maker, there are five different features that he gives us as we begin in Romans 15, verse 14. This week, we're going to look at two. Next week, we're going to look at the other three. But the first one is this. If you want to develop as a disciple maker, you want to have a compelling vision for people maturing in Christ. David McAllister uh, Wilson said this. Vision isn't everything, but it's the beginning of everything. Vision is the beginning of everything. What is it that you envision? What, what could happen? Visual, vision is like a mental picture of what tomorrow could look like. It's, it's what could become. And what Paul does, beginning in verse 14 through 16, is he is giving us his vision. And he's casting it out there. And it's a vision for maturity. And so look at verse 14. He says, And concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness. You're filled with all knowledge and able to admonish one another. He says, man, I, I see God at work in you. I see maturity taking place. And really, there's only one other church that gets this kind of accolade, and that is the church at Thessalonica. If you ever want to know, what does it look like a church on track that's doing it right? First Thessalonians gives you that picture. But notice what he's commenting. He says, man, you guys have got it. 
You're full of goodness. You've high moral character. You're filled with all knowledge. That there is a deep, intimate knowledge of God. That you've got good theology. That it's being worked out in your life. And that's how it's supposed to work. I mean, how you behave is directly influenced by what you believe. And he says, man, I see a lot of maturity. And notice something else he says. And that you're able to admonish. This word has the idea of encourage or to warn or advise. It is the gentlest form of correction. And he's saying... You're involved in each other's lives. You speak into each other's lives. You care for the development of the people around you, the people in your church. It's not just like you go to church with people, but you actually are at the church and you're involved with people's lives. That word admonish, if you've ever heard of Nuthetic Counseling, Jay Adams wrote a book called Competent to Counsel, and he introduced kind of the world of Nuthetic, the idea of involved and encouraged and engaging and even correcting people's behavior. He based it off of this word, this word admonish. So what does that look like? What does it look like to have a vision of seeing people come to maturity? It looks like you and I being involved with each other's lives. Paul Cedar wrote this. My most painful experiences have been when I've had a problem and no one loved me enough to tell me about it. Right? That's kind of like you got a glaring problem. You can always know the person that really loves you because they're the one that's going to pull you aside and, hey, let's talk about this. I see that that you're young and you've got potential. I want to spend time investing in you and helping you develop. What's that? That is making disciples of all the nations. I want to see you enjoy the fullness of maturity in Christ. And so you can always tell a church that's maturing and growing when this sort of behavior is taking place in their lives. Like Gordon MacDonald writes of an experience when he was in seminary. He's a well-known author. Um, while he's in seminary, he was asked to write and deliver a particular paper and present it in the forum of, before of all his faculty and all these students. And uh, some of you might be able to relate to this. He was a major procrastinator. So what happens if you've got something major due and it's really important, when do you start that? Like when it's absolutely necessary, like two days before, right? Yeah, some of you are smiling like, Got it. That's how I do it. And that's exactly what he did. So he's got this major presentation. So he starts it two days before. Well, it takes a lot of work. And so what do you got to do? You got to cut everything to stay focused on the thing that's most important, right? So he cuts all of his classes because he focuses on this presentation and writing this paper. Well, the day comes, comes to the auditorium. Two days later, he presents it. People like it. They all clap. It was really good. He's feeling really good about himself. And one of his professors, uh, actually a professor in the classes that he'd been dodging and cutting actually approached him and and said this you know Gordon that was a good paper but it lacked the possibility of greatness do you want to know why (laughs) I mean what do you say there do you want to know why like and he's like you can't say no right so you're like "Uh, okay not really but okay why don't you tell me so this is what he writes his professor said this you sacrificed your routine responsibilities to write it your ministry will not be successful if you make this sort of thing a habit. And then McDonald goes on to write, You listen carefully to an insight like that when it comes from a man 40 years your senior, whom you respect. He was less interested in the content of my presentation than he was the character pattern that framed its writing. The paper would soon be forgotten. In fact, I can't remember anything about it now. But the work habits it revealed would continue the rest of my life if I didn't alter them. He saw this. I did not. His rebuke caused me to reform my work ethic. Friends, when you got a vision for people maturing, 
Romans 15, 14 comes into play. And you and I, we speak into one another's lives. And he says, this is something that was given to me by the grace of God. And he says in verse 15, but I have written you very boldly to you on some points so as to remind you again because of the grace that was given me from God. God is the one who called me by grace to serve in the role, a unique role in the establishment of the church as an apostle. And he has given me this grace to remind you. And friends, a lot about spiritual leadership is just reminding people what they already know. If you're a teacher, a good chunk of your time is what? Reminding people, your students, of things that they should know, right? If you are a coach, you live in this world, right? You're telling them over and over and over and over and over again the stuff that you've already covered, stuff that they quote-unquote already knew. It's reminding. Let me tell you about spiritual leadership. We are reminding people. Second Peter Three chapters, three different times, he says, I write these things to remind you. And so he says, I'm reminding you on certain points due to this grace that God has given me. And this, in verse 16, he then paints the picture of his vision. The grace of God that was given to me was to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. Gentiles are who? The non-Jewish people. Ministering, look at this picture, as a priest, the gospel of God so that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And so what he's saying is like he's giving this metaphor, and he is calling to mind like a priest bringing an offering to God. And you would see this in the Old Testament. They would bring the sacrifice, and it was a sacrifice meant to the honor and the glory of God. He says, I want you to know I see my whole life like a priest bringing the offering of the Gentiles who have embraced Christ, they know the gospel, they're trusting in him, and I am like presenting this offering to the living God. That's my vision. That's what I'm all about. I want to see people of every tribe, tongue, and nation worshiping God, following Christ, making disciples. That picture drives my behavior. That's how I live. And it's and you might think like, well, being an apostle must have been glamorous, man. You just show up, all these packed out crowds, everybody's just hanging on every word. Actually, no. When I look and keep reading the New Testament, most of their life is spent walking around on one dirty road after another. You show up, uh, people may give you some attention, but likely not. And when they do, it may be negative. You get ridiculed. They treat you with hostility. You make them mad enough. They start beating you or throwing rocks at you. They run you out of town. It would be oftentimes a rather miserable existence. We'd all be super whiny about it, right? But I'll tell you what takes the mundane and makes it glorious is when you've got a vision. That what I do with my life, it has value and importance. That I want to see all the things I do... The simple stuff, the easy stuff, the difficult stuff, the hard stuff, the painful, the why, the reason I make sacrifices, I've got a vision of presenting the Gentiles, all these non-Jewish people, trusting in Christ like a sacrifice to the living God. I, I'll tell you this, how you and I perceive ourselves determines how we live our lives. How you see yourself determines how you live your life. And so let me encourage you to have a compelling vision for seeing people come to the maturity of Christ. In everything you do, if you bake an apple pie and you give it to your neighbor, 
see it as an offering to God. If you hold a child and you do so with love, see it as like, I am actually expressing an act of love to Jesus. If you are an employee, you treat your people with dignity. It's like a beatitude. When you present yourself in a class or you share the gospel, you do so as a fragrance aroma to God. You see all of your life as sacred. Please, everything about what you do, sacred, involved in the ministry of the kingdom. Looking to see people grow in maturity in Christ. Willing to make those kind of investments. You do your work to the honor and glory of God. And you know what that is? That's worship. And what did it look like when Paul was fulfilling the Great Commission? Friends, it's right here. Right here in these verses. And friends, this compelling vision, it is so needed today. Let me give you some statistics that were recently produced by the Center of the Study of Global Christianity. Did you know in North America, one out of five non-Christians has no relationship with a person that is following Christ, that truly knows him? One in five in North America. And I assure you that statistic is going to increase quickly. And then, of course, if you look at it, like 65% of Buddhists, they do not know a follower of Jesus. 75% of Chinese people, 78% of Hindus, 43% of Muslims in America do not personally know a follower of Christ. And then when you look at this worldwide, well, it gets terrible, much worse. Did you know that 8 out of 10 non-Christians do not know a genuine, authentic follower of Christ? It's interesting. Todd Johnson, one of the researchers in the study, he said this, relatively small gestures like inviting families into your home for Thanksgiving dinner can have a bigger impact than huge mission campaigns. We think we've got to sink all this money into some grandiose program, and that's going to be the answer. Friends, the answer is having a simple vision and acting upon it in simple ways. You just invite. You engage. Let's not make this more complex than it really needs to be. And Paul, he sees the Gentiles and he understands the ministry is about people. It's not about being preoccupied with programs we administer or even the classes that we teach or even books that we write because all those things have to be about bringing people to Christ and helping them grow and mature. You can really get focused on the mechanics and you got it. You got to have organization, right? And you want to be efficient and you want to work smart. Don't get me wrong. But let's remember it's about people knowing Christ and growing to the fullness of maturity in Christ. And this is Paul's vision, and it's an inspiring one, and that's what leaders do. They cast a vision, and it's exciting, and it's mobilizing, and it brings people others, and it brings life life into an ideal. And he says, I've got a vision of presenting the Gentiles like a sacrifice unto God. And at Fellowship, if you're new here, we've got a vision. Our vision is four words. It has to be simple so I can remember it. It's growing deep, reaching out. That logo, that live oak tree, we have it everywhere. It's to remind us of the vision. And just like a tree, it starts off as a sapling, and like the little roots go down in the ground, and they start drawing nutrients, they start getting stability, and as the roots grow down, guess what? The tree grows up. And what happens is drawing nutrients and getting water and gaining stability. Then it's, the trunk starts developing, and it starts branching out, and you start, it starts bearing fruit. Well, friends, that picture is what we are asking God for every single person in our church. And we, as a church, we are growing deep. Growing deep in knowing God and His Word. And as we do, 
as we genuinely know Christ, he starts shaping our character, our convictions, and our behavior. And what happens then is we start branching out. Knowing Christ and abiding in Christ shows up in our relationships, how we treat our spouse, we're married, our kids, our extended family, our neighbors, people in the church, people we work with, even our enemies. It shows up even in our careers, which we could think of as our ministry because we see all of life is sacred. And we bear fruit, fruit for the gospel. We make disciples in the context of natural, normal relationships. Friends, if you and I are going to be involved in developing as disciple makers, just look at Paul. We've got to have a compelling vision for people maturing in Christ, starting with our families, starting with people in our church. We want this. Let me give you something else. You're going to find it in verses 17 through 19. If we're going to develop as disciple makers, not only do we have to have a compelling vision for people maturing in Christ, but we need to have a Christ-centered and empowered life. Look at this, verse 17. He says, Therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting in the things pertaining to God. In Christ, I have reason for boasting. And look what he says in verse 18. He says, For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. You see that? resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. He says, I am only going to boast in what God is doing through me. You think like, wow, the guy's got a great vision. And so he's fulfilling that vision. Yeah, but actually it's God fulfilling the vision through him. That's how it works. You and I being involved in the disciple-making mission, God's got to do the work, right? He's got to be the one exercising the activity. Like, we all have inadequacies. Like, I've got issues and inadequacies. I, I don't have it all together. I need God to do the work through me. I'll tell you one of my common prayers. In fact, I prayed it in my office before I walked over here to services today. Was, Lord, would you just simply do your work through me? It's kind of like this. It's like a, like a paintbrush. It doesn't take credit for the master art piece, does it? I did this. You were involved in it, but the master painter really was the one that did that. Or like a violin. It can't take credit for the beautiful symphony. It was certainly involved, but it was the, the player that brought it to, to the music to life. And friends, that's how it is with our life. You and I, fully yielded to the master, man, in the master's hand, we can be involved in his ministry. We can see God at work. And so notice what the work is. He says, I'm not going to assume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in what? The obedience of the Gentiles and done so by word and deed. Really, it was Christ at work. The gospel is not just you believe in Jesus so you can have a Savior and you can be forgiven of sin and you don't go to hell. That is a major part of the gospel. You can be forgiven of your sins. And who wants to go to hell? Nobody does. Okay. But the gospel is not just calling people to a savior. It is calling people to obedience to him as Lord. Do you see that? Do you see what it says in verse 18? That's how the book of Romans began. Romans 1, I think it's verse 5. The obedience of faith. God is creating people that truly follow Jesus as Lord. They believe what he says. They ask the Spirit to empower them to do what he's asked them to do. And we are engaged. We obey Jesus. The whole idea of like... Well, Jesus is my Savior, and I'm really glad I've got life insurance policies. So I don't go to hell. But don't follow him as Lord. It's foreign to the New Testament. It just doesn't exist. 
obviously our obedience is far from perfect, but we have a desire to follow him, to do what he says. And like what he's calling us to do is to make disciples. And how do you go about that? You may have missed this at the end of verse 18. He says, I go about it by word and deed. I speak it with my mouth and I live it with my life. You see, there, there's not to be this great disparity between what we say and how we live. Obviously, we're not we're all fallen or far from perfect. But there's a desire that our message and our life, there's congruence. There, there's parallels. There's integrity. And what this tells us, friends, is that evangelism and discipleship, you see that verse? It's incarnational. It's, it's lived out in our lives. And you see this all throughout the New Testament. Paul, when he talks about going and doing ministry, like in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8, when he's talking about his ministry among the Gentiles, he says, For I have such a fond affection for you. When we were there, we were well pleased not to impart just only the gospel of God, but our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. We gave you the gospel. We gave you the word. We gave everything to you. But we didn't just give you the word. We gave you our lives. It's incarnational. We brought it to bear through our lives. And furthermore, he said, I want you to understand, this was Christ. He is doing the work. Verse 19, it even happened in the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and roundabout as far as Elycrium, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And Paul is saying, so much is God empowering that there were occasions we're in our apostolic authority that God actually did works of signs and wonders. What's that? On occasion, God worked through his apostles or some of their close associates, and they literally would be used by God to do a miracle, something completely out of the ordinary. Generally, these were miracles of healing. At times, it would even be casting out a demon out of a person's life. And what people would go like, whoa, what's that? It's a wonder, right? It was also a sign that God had moved into their midst. And you better listen to this message. You see, signs and wonders, these miraculous gifts, why they flourished and were involved in the ministry of the apostles, did two things. It authenticated the minister, the the person that was showing up, the messenger, and their message. It was to put people on the alert. God is in your presence and he has a message for you to hear. And he says, that's what happened. And it, I want you to know how I live my life. That's what I did. I, everywhere I went, I represented this kind of ministry. I brought the fullness of the gospel. I was involved in disciple making and building people up to the glory of Christ. I brought the gospel and the message of Jesus everywhere I went. And when he's talking about going from Jerusalem to Elycrium, that is a distance of about 1,400 miles. Elycrium is in modern-day Albania. It used to be like Yugoslavia. Northern Albania used to be Yugoslavia. It's a 1,400-mile distance, long ways away. Everywhere I went, this is my way of life. I have a Christ-centered and empowered life. I fully preach. I didn't hold anything back. Whether it was popular, and oftentimes it was not, whether they were throwing rocks at me or they actually welcomed me in their home, I preached the gospel. And friends, this is what Paul is doing. He is modeling how you go about the Great Commission. It's verse 13. Remember when he said, Now may the God of all hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what this is. I abounded in hope. I had hope, even when hope, it seemed hopeless. 
I was trusting in Christ. And really, the way this happens, the way we keep moving forward in the midst of all of our difficulties and our discouragements, and who does not have them, is when we have a Christ-centered and an empowered life. And think of it this way. Think of Christ at the center of everything you do. I know that sometimes we think like, well, Jesus first and then everything else, and we got this little list afterwards. But then what, what does that mean? Like, well, I spent time with Jesus, so now I can just do whatever I want. I, I read the Bible. I read a psalm this morning. I prayed a little bit. So now I will live life on my own and figure it out at work or school. Actually, think of it this way. Like, Jesus is at the hub of the wheel, and you've got all these spokes of all these different things you're involved in. But everything you do, see Jesus at the center of it. See all of life as sacred. See yourself as Christ-centered and empowered. So whether you're at work or at school with your family, at church, you're interacting with friends or your kids or your spouse or you're mowing your lawn or you're just about ready to take a nap. Not right now, but maybe an hour from now. Just see Christ at the center. And this is what Paul is all emphasizing in the New Testament. Remember Ephesians 3.17? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. Everywhere you go, Christ is dwelling in my hearts by faith. Or like remember in Galatians 2.20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but what? Christ lives in me. And the life that I live in the flesh, I live in faith, the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. It's, it's Christ in me. No longer is it about me. It's not about me being a success. It's about God doing a significant work through my life. Some of you will be familiar with William Carey. Uh, he's known as the father of modern-day missions, just an amazing pioneer missionary to India. Had a, this guy was brilliant. This guy started off like a shoe cobbler. He fixed shoes. And just, just an ordinary guy like you and me, but just was compelled, I am supposed to take this mission of making disciples of all the nations, and it's supposed to happen. And no one was thinking like this, but he did. And he, had, he was a brilliant guy, highly resilient, super difficult, like the worst circumstances. It's hard to read biography on his life because of how difficult it was. When he's dying, there's a young guy by the name of Alexander Duff that comes and visits him and, and talks with him. And, and Carrie asks this Mr. Duff to pray for him. And following the prayer, Duff turns to leave. And as he's leaving, William Carey, this great missionary, just about ready to make entrance into eternity, to be in the presence of the Lord, says this. He calls him back and he says, Mr. Duff, you've been speaking about Dr. Carey, Dr. Carey. When I am gone, say nothing about Dr. Carey. Speak about Dr. Carey's Savior. Friends, we really can't make much of ourselves and much of Christ. It's going to be one or the other. Are you really just going to be a personal success? Or do you want a life of significance? Do you want to be a disciple maker? Will you do what Jesus has asked us to do? And friends, this text, and we're going to see more of it next week, it gives us this vision, a vision of what it looks like to give ourselves wholeheartedly to the Lord, to see people brought to the fullness of maturity in Christ. And we are on mission when we are growing in Christ and we're helping others do the same. Let's pray. Lord, I would pray and just ask that you would free us from the shackles of self-occupation and personal success and give us a vision and a heart 
to just have significance by investing in the lives of others. And just as we've seen patterned here by Paul in the book of Romans, help us to understand what that looks like in our lives. And so I'm going to give you just a few moments for you to pray and ask God, how are you doing with what Jesus has asked us to do? What are your next steps? Would you take a a minute to pray and think about that? Lord, for the person who has come here today who has never trusted in Jesus, but they are drawn to him. They, they need forgiveness of sins. They need life. They don't want to be about just success. They want to experience what it means to be transformed from the inside out, to have significant influence in the lives of others. But they just simply, simply just pray with me and say, Lord, I turn from self and my sin, and I trust in Jesus, Savior and Lord of my life. And, Father, we're going to ask that you would work in all of our hearts. Help us to take the next steps. Help us to continue to grow as a body of believers who care about the development of each other and the development of your disciples even worldwide. Grand vision, but we get it right from the pages of Scripture. But only you can do it. So we ask as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.